0: After Verna and Doug drowned off Santa Cruz Island on January 2nd, 1981, their bodies were flown by helicopter back to Ventura County, where they were declared dead. The next day, January 3rd, they were autopsied by the county's acting medical examiner. He concluded that they drowned by accident. But Santa Cruz Island is actually in the jurisdiction of Santa Barbara County. So that's why, when Candy Hinman wanted someone to investigate Fred, she called the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department. And they took her call. Candy's tip put the accidental drownings of Verna and Doug in a new, uncomfortable light. What if their deaths were not an accident? Verna and Doug were about to be cremated, so the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department put a hold on their cremations and brought their bodies back to Santa Barbara to be autopsied again, in secret.
5: The date is January 9, 1981. The location is the Cottage Hospital morgue. This is the, the re-autopsy examination of a white female adult identified as Verna Joe Roller, R-O-E-H-L-E-R. The body has been previously autopsied on January 3, 1981, by Dr. Craig Duncan of the Ventura County Medical Examiner Coroner's Office.
4: Commencing section of uh, bone.
0: There were too many similarities to ignore. Two wives, dead in the water, for no clear reason. And Fred, the only witness in both cases, with a story that didn't really stand up to interrogation. But this time, there was a second
5: victim, a child. This will be the re-autopsy examination of a white male child identified as Douglas Johnson.
0: What if Fred had killed them all? Verna, Doug, and Gene. And was about to get away with it. Again. I'm Dana Goodyear and this is Lost Hills. Episode 6, Cold Pricklies. Three months after Verna and Doug died, Fred was arrested at home in Malibu.
2: I was stunned.
0: Here's Fred's recollection of what happened that day.
2: I got the kids off the school and I had taken a shower and I was, and the phone rang. And so I said hello and, and there was no answer. So then a little later, the doorbell rang, so I walked downstairs and opened the door, and there's three guys with guns aimed at me. And they said, uh, we're here to arrest you. They handcuffed me and put me in the car, and, uh, and that was basically it.
0: They drove him to the Malibu station and read him his rights. He was being held on two counts of homicide, one for Verna, one for Doug.
2: I I never thought it would get to that point, you know, because like I say, I had answered all their questions. I had met with them three times. My family had talked to them. The people on the boat had talked to them. You know, I couldn't imagine anything that had been left unsaid. You know, we 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 didn't have fights. There were, you know, there was there was nothing going on. So when I got to the substation. They put me in a uh, tank by myself. So then that night, Fairfield, my brother, and sister-in-law all showed up at the place at the substation, and were there when uh, when I walked out. And they said, uh, "Are you okay?" And I said, "How you know how are the girls?" And Ron said, "You know, don't worry about it. We are taking care of that." So. That was the last discussion I had with them that night. then they they drove me to Santa Barbara that night.
0: Fred was taken to the Santa Barbara County Jail, And he never saw sea level drive again. Throughout the spring of 1981, the Malibu rumor mill was cranking. The search warrant affidavit was the hottest read in town, and it was juicy. Full of details about Jean and her affair with Fred's sailing buddy, Dick Falthoen, about guns and hot tubs, and especially Fred's explosive temper. Neighbors were talking to each other and to the police. One Malibu woman had seen Verna at the market basket a month or two before she died, and Verna told her she was unhappy in her marriage. Someone else had seen Fred leaving Verna's house through the back door at 8 a.m., just weeks after Jean's death. The neighbor who drove the kids home from school after Verna died said that when she dropped them off, she saw Fred lurking when she pulled up. This is Kathy Pullis, a Malibu mom whose son, a friend of Doug's, was also coached by Fred. She's being interviewed by a private detective hired by Fred's defense team.
4: Since January, this is the top sure. of the town, And immediately there was, there was the
3: division, you no, know, who couldn't possibly I've already have done that? that
6: already.
3: Yeah, and...
6: Yes, he
0: probably did. Yeah,
4: yeah, he probably did. And I mean, I have those feelings. Some days I think he couldn't, couldn't possibly, and then other days I think... But what if he did? Mm-hmm. You know,
0: and everyone had an opinion or three about Fred Rayler. Did he kill Verna and Doug? What about Gene? Was it greed, opportunism? or was he a psychopath masquerading as a Malibu dad?
3: And you have to understand Malibu is very, very much
5: a small town. We all think be very sophisticated, but the fact is they were not. And this is the talk of the town. Well, right you now, can be sure. sure. It, it has been. It
0: the has been. allegation it that anyways, Fred had murdered Verna and Doug, the investigator said, was largely based on circumstantial evidence. Fred's character was going to be a major topic. The arrest opened a rift in Malibu. You were either with Fred or against him. Fred's friend, Mark Hetrick, told me the divisions caused by the case drove him and his wife Beth to leave Malibu.
5: All of the moms that are all, you know, of a certain level, uh, economic level, and involved in that, you know, they all get together and they all talk. So there's sort of a gossipy group. And, you know, right away they started all of these theories about, well, you know, Gene his first wife, died, and, you know, that's pretty suspicious. And I think in a whole lot of ways that's, you know, in a whole lot of ways that's why we've, you know, we've, we left – is because we just, that was going to be an open wound with two sides that forever, that's just in that town.
0: By the spring of 1981, the gossip was so intense that a group of Malibu people wrote a letter to the editor of the Malibu Times, begging for fellow residents to withhold judgment until after Fred's trial. They signed it, Neighbors for Fairness to Fred Rayler. Carol, Jean's sister, told detectives Fred could be, quote, a Class A charmer, quote, so unbelievably charming at times. But Carol and others said Fred also had a nasty side. His whole affect could change in an instant. This is a colleague of Fred's from the naval base at Point Magoo, talking to an investigator.
3: can be a very likable... Charming individual. Especially if I think if he wants to be mm-hmm. you know, he chooses to be he charm the socks right off of him. He's a very charming person. I think he can also you know, blankety blank so you know, be, you know, he did this or that, you know, them but he has the capacity <laughs> Either way.
0: <laughs> Dennis O'Gorman also worked with Fred. He told an investigator that when Fred lost his temper, look out.
3: He just flew off the handle, nostrils flaring, red in the face, uh, called me all kinds of four-letter words. And he started screaming and ranting and raving and yelling at us, uh, like, a, like a madman. He'd gone completely off his, off his tree, just completely out of control. He was literally like a, like a madman.
0: Fred, he said, was so loathed at work that one guy had a picture of him blown up and turned into a dartboard. But he also said that somehow it was hard to stay mad at Fred.
3: Even today, I can't dislike Fred. I mean, even if I really worked on it all day long and I convinced myself of all the nasty things he did and stuck myself with pins to remember all the things. And I was just ready to kill him as soon as he walked in the door. I knew, I know that when he walked in that door with a big smile on his face and a couple of woody remarks that we would sit down and have a beer together and and not be friends, but I just couldn't. It's, it's strange. It's hard. You have to meet him to understand what mm-hmm. I'm saying. But he, he's a real charm. And uh, but in the back of my mind, I know I would never work with him again because he hasn't changed a bit. He has no respect for anyone. People are just pawns. They're just tools.
0: So, Fred was smart and calculating, and he used people like pawns. And they didn't always even register the abuse.
7: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lost today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P pcom slash lost. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
0: Among people in Malibu, Fred Raylor was known to run a tight ship. This is an interview Beth Hetrick gave an investigator. She taught with Verna and is married to Fred's friend, Mark.
8: You always remind me, this is because i really feeling, of a guy in the sound of music Christopher <laughs> Plunk. Plumber plays because it was that strictness, you know, but also that love. And there's a lot of that with Fred, with the kids.
0: Not everyone in Malibu got the Captain Von Trapp thing. Sure, they noticed how incredibly well-behaved Fred and Verna's kids were. But maybe they were too well-behaved. It was a little creepy.
6: Fred came from a pretty tight disciplined family. I mean, he's a Midwesterner, really. And, you know, we, we know what Midwesterners are like. You know, they're a little bit uptight. They, they, they have their own somewhat blinkered vision of, of life. I mean, I, I'm not saying this in a derogatory fashion. I'm saying this in the fashion of the Let It All Hang Out Malibu crowd viewed it.
0: This is archival tape of Ivor Davis, a British journalist who was friends with Fred in Malibu. They coached kids' soccer together, and he was one of the neighbors for fairness to Fred Raylor. It seemed to him that Fred was the victim of a cultural misunderstanding.
6: Uh, My evaluation, if you like, which, um, I mean, here is a man, Fred, who didn't quite fit in Malibu, um, in in newly affluent community where you do your own thing, okay? And he disciplined his children, and people, you know, people say, my God, (laughs) discipline your children. That's, uh, you know, you, you don't do that. He alienated some people, I think, from, from my observations, who had been friendly with Werner by kind of pushing them out when he married her. And, um, and by edging these people out, they took an instant dislike to him, or they, they, they grew to dislike him. So something like this comes along, a terrible tragedy like this, and people say, well, Fred was kind of weird anyway, and this, what happened justifies our impression. He was not the run-of-the-mill guy. Um, And the fact that he did discipline his kids uh, was, believe it or not, something of a negative factor in that community.
0: Fred's approach to parenting set him apart and made him vulnerable to criticism. And it was a bit extreme. When I visited Fred's daughters in Colorado over the summer, they were full of stories about Fred's unusual discipline. Heidi pulled out a brick wrapped in a piece of paper with a little monster face drawn on it and the words... Cold Prickly in Fred's handwriting The brick was part of Fred's punishment system how he kept those kids so perfectly in line It was the flip side of the warm fuzzies the rewards you got for good behavior The sisters explained how it worked
8: So I told you the whole, there was an actual story like a book about Cold pricklies and warm fuzzies and how you feel when you, like, punch your sister and that's a cold prickly or whatever. And so he took this brick, like a house red brick, and covered it in brown paper and drew a cold prickly on it. And then the punishment was he would dole out how much time you had to spend carrying this brick around. And I only have a memory of having it one time, and Heidi had to take it to, like, soccer practice. <laughs> That was the punishment, is yeah. you had to carry it, and you couldn't set it down. <laughs> it was just that it was a concrete reminder of mm-hmm. what you did. I remember going to the bathroom with it on my lap, like, <laughs> I can't put it down. I'm going to get in trouble if I put it down.
0: The other thing the kids had to do when they were bad was run. So those idyllic runs on the beach, some of those were done under duress.
8: Like inside our kitchen cupboard, there was our names, and then there would be tick marks. And for every tick mark, you had to run. And we ran as a family, but then if you had tick marks, you had to like run off your tick
0: marks. They'd run up and down LaChusa Beach, rain or shine.
8: There is a story of me being out there by myself, (laughs) running, crying, and the neighbor called dad and was like, Fred, do you know Kirsten's out on the beach? And she's like, yeah, she's working off her punishment, but he could see me from the porch or whatever. And also that was back in the 70s when parents weren't (laughs) helicopter parents.
0: Kim, the sisters agreed, was Miss Perfect. Here's Kirsten. Kim
8: never had the brick.
0: Kirsten was the baby, so not in trouble as often. Heidi and Doug, they were the middle kids. And then Heidi and Doug had the
8: brick a lot.
0: And let's just say the two of them became excellent runners. Doug, especially, was spirited. All boy, Fred once said, full of energy, go, go, go. Tell about Doug's mischief a little bit. I mean, I can't,
8: I do remember one time it was funny, he was like, decided to run away. And he's like, okay, you know, my dad said, okay, and he... Pack some stuff. I don't even think he made it very far, but like they were just—they just, just let us. They're like, "All right, see ya," you know. Because of course, he didn't yeah. run away. Like walking the beaches of Malibu, poor me, you know. And I, he did. I think just went down to our friend's house and then, you know, came back. But I—I I don't know. It wasn't. You know, we Maybe were just, just argumentative. Like it was just kid stuff. Like, where, there was no brawls or anything major. It was just silly I think it stuff. Was also <laughs> sass. Like, yeah. I think there was a lot of 100%. sass, and there was a little bit of. I mean, Dad's told stories about how I would even be sassy or bratty to Verna, and it would, and Doug would give. Dad attitude, and they would have this like, "Well, your little, yeah. you know, angel did this, and well, your little angel did
0: this." But so there was a bit of s- sass going yeah, on.
8: Wasn't any. I mean, that
0: was a specific dynamic. Kirsten sassing Verna and Doug sassing Fred, and it came out of another dynamic that Kirsten was Fred's favorite, and Doug was Verna's. Uh-huh. Dottie Menville, one of the family's neighbors in Malibu, said that Kirsten's privileged position with Fred and Doug's with Verna was a thing in the marriage. She talked about it with an investigator.
8: Yeah, they, they, they had some two initial thing. Uh, prime Kid or PK or something like that. She may have shared that with somebody else. It was some initial They'd, and and every once in a while, I guess, even when the kids are around, they might go PK or something like that if they felt the other one was being, um, showing favoritism, showing, showing favoritism uh. to their um, own favorite child.
0: Fred even complained about Verna's relationship with Doug when he was at work. This is Dennis O'Gorman in an archival interview.
3: From time to time, he'd make mention, I say, of the boy, you know. But uh, if the boy didn't want to eat that or whatever, then she'd make a special meal for him, or he always got some sort of special treatment. Or uh, sometimes he would get on the boy's case because the boy was spoiled so damned rotten. And she'd be, if she stood up for any of the kids, she'd stand up for the boy before she'd stand up for
2: the rest of them.
0: All these stories—they were starting to paint a picture of Fred, one that would be presented to the jury. Carol, Jean's sister, even got in on this. She felt moved to write a letter to the Santa Barbara detectives. In it, she said that Fred often humiliated Doug. Once Doug disobeyed him by jumping out of their inflatable before it was all the way to shore. When Fred got hold of Doug, he kicked him. Doug, Jean's sister wrote to the detectives, was, quote, a tortured little boy. This fall, I met up with a childhood friend of Doug's in Malibu. We met at the parking lot of the Trankas Market, an upscale mini mall on PCH.
4: Okay, my name's John Lytell. Um, I grew up with uh, Dougie Johnson and uh, the, all the families out here in Malibu um, until about 19, the end of 1980, 1981.
0: And then, uh... John is Patty's son, so he literally grew up with Doug, sharing Verna's duplex on Broad Beach Road. He's a surfer and a sailor, and now an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy.
4: I've been a sheriff for twenty over 21 years, since June. 21 years, and with the county for L.A. for 22 years.
0: But in 1981, he was 8 years old and Doug's best friend. I'd asked him to take me around his old neighborhood. He got into my car, which is a Volvo. Total mom car. Guess, yeah, this one is a little... You know
4: this is like one of the best cars ever to smuggle in? Bundle drugs. Because <laughs> this floor right here. So there's my finger there. Yeah. And that uh, my put my other hand is about a foot below it. It's like all foam in there. And I'd scrape it out and load it with happy stuff.
0: Happy. Wow. We pulled onto PCH and stopped at the intersection with Broad Beach Road. So is this like your turn into your childhood? Oh
4: yeah, Broad Beach, and then there's one at the north end too. The Starbucks was in here, that's for sure. And Trinkets didn't look that nice to market. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of junky old store. <laughs> there was no surf shop, There's was none of these boutique shops or <laughs> any of that stuff.
8: We
0: found a parking spot on the side of Broad Beach Road, just past where a private security guard was posted up. Down the road on the left was Verna's old house, where John had lived as a kid. Through the slots of the fence you could see a big grassy yard edged with flowers and trees and the ocean sparkling in the near distance. Sea-level drive plunges off Broad Beach Road toward the ocean. It's blocked from car traffic by an electric fence, but there's a pedestrian gate.
4: I think, see that tree right there? Yeah. It's just the top of it. That's the one we climbed all the time, and my dad had to come get us out of the tree. <laughs> so that story gets told so many times at my uh, at any of our fa- family gatherings, because whenever we talk about Dougie, um, my sister always brings it up how my dad had, we had like, a stuck up in the tree, and Dougie was like a telling us to, or help, or (laughs) we were saying help, because we could climb up, but we couldn't climb down it.
0: We followed sea level down as it turned parallel to the shore. The waves crashed against the wild beach where Fred and Verna's children used to do their runs. We're looking for 31685. John was having a moment. It was almost like he was dreaming.
4: Uh, Like, I I don't remember the houses being this big. And that's funny, because you you think as a little kid, everything would be bigger now, but (laughs) now it's, it's, uh, everything just looks gigantic (laughs) to me. (laughs) It's just weird. I haven't been down here since, though. I've never, I haven't been down to this street, even on duty or anything like that.
0: We stopped in front of a large contemporary house with an agave garden and board-formed concrete retaining walls.
4: So I remember this yard though this yard was here, and there was like a there was like a kid um, play structure and then this
0: John uh, said Doug's it. death traumatized him and altered the course of his life. When his dad told him the news, he didn't understand at first.
4: I don't think I talked for three days. It was weird. I don't think I ate for a bunch too. It was just weird because it was like having like part of your soul ripped out. They lived here, and then they lived in that house with us at that L unit, so it was almost like he was a little brother, or like a brother, not even a little brother. How often
0: do you feel like you think about him or talk about him now?
4: I've had a couple days where, like, if I hear a song, I'll I'll end up crying. it will be like a John Denver song, maybe Country Road or something like that. It's just something that hits your heartstrings.
0: When he was a child, John said, Fred had made him uncomfortable.
4: I was a little bit afraid of my dad, but when I went over to other people's houses, I didn't think I'd have to be afraid of their dads, but I was. Um, You try to forget the stuff that makes you the most scared when you're a kid. So I don't, like, I remember his face 100%. That'll never go out of my brain.
0: The feeling in the Raylor home, he said, was oppressive. No levity, no laughter.
4: I believe there are evil characters at play, and I believe they're good people. So, and I've known that since I was a little kid. So when you walk into a place and you feel evil, you just know it's there. It's not like you're seeing ghosts or anything like that. You just feel, like you can feel energy. And I'm not trying to be like new agey or metaphysical. You can just feel it.
0: I was gonna ask if Fred was your introduction to evil. Is that what you're saying? Um,
4: I don't understand his thinking at the time and when I look back at it now, I'm like, yeah, that was, that's pretty evil.
0: Doug's death, he said, had shaped him right down to the decision to become a cop.
4: So I think we had, Dougie and I had both wanted to be on that path of being the good guy, not, not being an opportunist, of being the hero, I guess. So when that happened, um, I don't know, it just, it follows you your whole life. Psychologically for me, it was like a challenge. And I think based back on what happened here and wanting to make sure the good guys protect the little ones or protect the innocent, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Dougie had an effect on that. Because, like I said, I, I won't... If Dougie's dead, i got to be the other half of him. Honestly. <laughs> i got to live.
0: <laughs> John stepped away for a second to collect himself.
4: His life's over. i gotta live, I got to live two lives. So it's hard. It's like I have to um, just bring him with me everywhere. He's right here and he's always here. He's always here. Every every decision I make and stuff like that. I know he's, I mean, it might not be like something that I put in my head and I'm like, okay, um, what do you think, Dougie? It's not like an imaginary friend. It's just, he's there.
0: He doesn't know the details of what happened to Doug. They still elude him. What he believes is a jumble of what he overheard the grown-ups whispering about when he was eight, and things he's read online. And that's a big part of why I wanted to talk to him, because he has an emotional investment in the case and knows the players. And he has a detective's ability to help make sense of all the contradictions. First, I had to get him up to speed on what the first autopsies showed. He didn't even know about them. And when I told him about the accidental drowning determination, it really threw him.
4: I know you're about to mess with me, but from a law enforcement perspective, I would love to know more, because there had to be something more for them to come to that conclusion.
0: It was noisy on the street, so we went back to the car and sat there for a minute. I could feel him bracing himself.
4: So how do they die?
0: Drowning.
4: Just straight drowning? Mm-hmm. They're not going to just Drown. That's what I mean. They're not going to just like, oh, we're done swimming. We're going to just die. That just doesn't... Both of them could swim. So unless they were knocked unconscious, unless they were... um, You know what I think? Yeah. Okay. The story to me is total BS. Mm -hmm. First of all, if there's a rip or or whatever it is, a rip or undertow, whatever could pull them... Nothing's pulling them down. Mm -hmm. If anything, it's shooting them away from wherever they are. Mm -hmm. Like there's an eddy or something like that where they're not actually stuck in that area. So for them to stay afloat it's not hard unless they're knocked out. But if they were knocked out there's trauma.
0: John pulled out his phone and zoomed in on a map of Santa Cruz Island.
4: It, even to think about it makes me kind of sick, it makes me ill. So but I know what people do and I know what people will go to to get stuff done. Nobody saw him kill him. Nobody saw the boat flip over, right? <laughs> so it's like for the innocent side of it and the guilty side of it, nothing's seen. How did that happen? How is that possible for happen?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, would have to go out there and take a look at it. Well, look, we don't have to wait for you to be able to captain the Doug boat. has no grave site. We'll and John had never seen where his best friend died. Right there, sitting in the car with me, he decided that he needed to go to Bird Rock. There was just too much that didn't make sense. John Lytell is confused today just like everyone in Malibu was confused back then because the evidence was confusing, contradictory, and thin. Dr. Craig Duncan, who did the first autopsies, had observed no signs of trauma. The second, secret autopsies? They told a drastically different story. Dr. DeWitt Hunter, the medical examiner in Santa Barbara, agreed that the condition of Verna and Doug's lungs was consistent with drowning, but he also saw evidence of trauma. The Santa Barbara detectives were in the room and the whole procedure was filmed. On Verna, Dr. Hunter observed head trauma, not sufficient to kill her, but bruising, which was curious. After re-examining Verna, Dr. Hunter turned to Doug and his findings were extremely disturbing. According to Dr. Hunter, there was significant bruising on the back of Doug's head.
5: Obviously, the scalp has been shaved of all the hair. Now Dr. Hunter can reflect the scalp back and show underlying areas of uh, ecchymosis on both the inferior aspect of the scalp as well as the uh, occiput and uh, the base of the skull, now being pointed out by the tip of a scalpel once again.
0: The ecchymosis, or bruising, Dr. Hunter said, was, quote, consistent with trauma immediately prior to death, unquote. As if by magic, the Santa Barbara autopsies revealed powerful physical evidence in a case where there had been almost none. The new findings led the detectives to believe that Fred Raylor had rendered his victims unconscious, then held them underwater. This would line up with the stories they'd hear about Fred that he was strict, harsh, and quick to anger, that he resented Doug, and that he'd been violent with Jean, his first wife. A lot of people in Malibu had deep-seated suspicions about Jean's death. They thought Fred had killed her and covered his tracks so cleverly that the coroner had ruled her death an accident. Now the detectives were looking into the so-called suicide of Verna's first husband, Bill Johnson, to see if Fred could have, what, pushed him off the roof of the building in Westwood? They were even digging into an old story from Point Magoo about a diver who drowned while using Fred's equipment. Could the diver be a possible fifth victim? Was Fred Rayler a serial killer? But the question of motive for the deaths of Verna and Doug, that lay inside the house at Sea Level Drive. In papers tucked away in desk drawers, and secreted in a silver case under the desk in the living room. Papers, the DA believed, that showed Fred was living in a beachfront house of cards and that he needed money fast. Coming up on the next episode of Lost Hills... There's something here that's just not adding up.
2: Well, when they were saying that, oh, you're, you know, I was broke, I said, well, the thing you didn't search when you tore up my house was you didn't go into the deep freeze. I had a safe in there with 30 grand cash and about 5,000 in traveler's checks in it. And they were sort of stunned, and then they asked the detective if he had looked in the, in the deep freeze, and he said, of course, he hadn't.
0: That's next in Episode 7, Love or Money? Lost Tales is written and reported by me, Dana Goodyear. It's created by me and Ben Adair and produced by Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus, and you can hear the whole season ad free and get early access to the final two episodes. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. This show is sponsored
7: by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you